listen here, multinationals, I don't mean to sound like Paul Revere here, but if you think the world is just going to keep on taxing the internet the way that it is, or depending on which jurisdiction you're in, not taxing the internet, I've got news for you. The world turns and we turn right along with it. Hello, everyone. I'm Matthew DeMello, your host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And on today's episode, we're taking both a closer look at the digital service tax proposals from the OECD and a larger, more historical view about this moment in technology and the diminishing prospects of continuing to work with a tax order that is still very much stuck in the days of brick and mortar. Which is to say, this is a tax system that is not going to last, folks. Cross-border chief economist Mimi Song joins us to discuss her article for Bloomberg titled The Corporate Tax Revolution is Coming, Are We Ready? Which, if I can summarize with another classic warning of trouble ahead, basically tells everyone comfortable with the status quo right now to abandon all hope, ye who enter here, which I guess is the 2020s. And now that we've gone from the American Revolution to Dante, and in speaking of being able to impress people with otherwise not very useful intellectual credentials, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words throughout the course of this show. Send all three code words to the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Again, that's all one word, the Fiona Show at xbs.ai, and we will send you your certificates. All one word. Is this the 90s? This isn't your first rodeo. Anyway, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Here's a story of interest. Croatia's arm's length interest rate for loans is decreasing for related parties, that is. Effective January 1st, 2021, the maximum deductible interest rate on loans from a foreign related party is 3%. Where did it stand before? Good question. The previous rate was 3.42% per annum. In addition, the minimum taxable interest rate on loans to a foreign related party was also lowered from 3.42% to 3% per annum. As it stands, the interest rates are also applicable to related party loans between two Croatian taxpayers if one of them is in a, quote, tax favorable position. Transfer pricing in the United States is getting a facelift. The U.S. Treasury and IRS are spearheading the effort to draft new regulations for transfer pricing rules. The project, under Internal Revenue Code Section 482, is set to spotlight valuation of assets along with other issues. Here's what happened. The Tax Cuts and Job Act, or the TCJA, changed the definition of intangible assets to include goodwill. Goodwill, not to be confused with the nonprofit, is an intangible asset that cannot be separately identified within the company or organization. The TCAJ also included workforce in place and going concern value, which tie to the value of an existing business in the definition of intangible assets. While change is coming, the scope isn't as wide as it could be. In a recent court case with Amazon, the IRS tried to treat residual assets as intangible assets and be priced as such under transfer pricing rules. Unfortunately, it was met with harsh criticism. The court ruled against the IRS. There's also talks of a smaller project on IRC Section 367D, which addresses inbound transactions with intellectual property. Stock. It's utilized in soup, on Wall Street, and now in transfer pricing. The Israeli tax authorities recently released Income Tax Circular 1-2021. It clarifies the appropriate treatment of intercompany recharges from stock-based compensation for transfer pricing purposes. In 2018, the Israeli Supreme Court declared that stock-based compensation is part of the cost base for transfer pricing. The circular, while better late than never, further explains the tax authorities' take on the ruling. It indicates that stock-based payments should be considered a recharge cost, not a dividend or capital reduction. The fine print? To be considered a recharge, the payment must meet the following criteria. It reflects the value verified in financial statements. It's made only in exchange for vested equity agreements and is included in the cost base. If it doesn't check all the boxes, it's classified as, you guessed it, a dividend or capital reduction.
Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. That's true, or to to address this new landscape, right? Supply yeah. chains are changing, operational frameworks are changing, the infrastructures are are being modified to accommodate the new world. So, so you're right. I think from a functional profile perspective, perhaps we we end up getting more diversification. Which diversification, when it comes to a comparability analysis, makes it even more difficult to find the right comparables. Does that voice sound familiar? It should. That's cross-border solutions. Chief economist Mimi Song. And we've got to admit, lately she hasn't got it going on. Not only is she killing it at cross-border solutions by helping clients tackle their most scrutinized transfer pricing transactions, but she's writing insightful articles on the subject. And to add to her list, she's podcasting about those articles. Take the one she wrote for Bloomberg in December, tax scrutiny and what you can expect in 2021. The article explains the many concerns that taxpayers have about transfer pricing for fiscal year 2020, benchmarking, government aid, intercompany loans. And of course, she talks about how the OECD recommends approaching the complications that have arisen from COVID-19. By the way, you can find her white paper on the subject right now at xbs.ai. And yes, she talks about why you can expect more tax scrutiny going forward. Well, I think one of the main points here is that governments have been helping taxpayers with relief programs, and those relief programs are extremely costly. And so tax authorities are going to look for ways to shore up that lost tax revenue, right? And how are they going to be able to do that? I mean, ultimately, they're going to have to figure out who is manipulating the system once again? And and by the way, this is the tax authority perspective. It's not my perspective. I don't think any multinational yeah. is necessarily manipulating the system. It's everybody's operating within the confines of the law. Now, it's different if you're looking at it unilaterally, right, from a jurisdiction. Let's just take Germany, for example. I mean, Germany will basically say, hey, you know, all of a sudden my tax revenue has declined by 20% versus maybe the U.S. did only decline by 10%. Clearly, this is an unevil swing of the pendulum, and therefore, we need to look at this more closely. Of course, that Bloomberg article was from way back in December. So yesterday, Mimi's latest, The Corporate Tax Revolution is Coming, Are We Ready? has just debuted in Bloomberg, and that's what we'll be talking about today. We know you've had questions about Pillar 1, Pillar 2, and what they'll mean for transfer pricing and the arm's length principle. And today, Mimi Song is here to explain those hard-to-digest topics. Let's get started. We're here once again with Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song. Now out with a new article in Bloomberg titled, The Corporate Tax Revolution is Coming, Are We Ready? This is a fantastic article, Mimi. We hear phrases like digital economy and digital companies not paying their fair share of taxes in the media. Mimi, what is the fundamental reason for a tax revolution, so to speak? So the tax system as we know it. It, it's antiquated, right? It was developed back in the 1920s, uh, at least in the U.S. The concepts of taxation was based on brick and mortar businesses. You know, if you think about it, a company who was producing and manufacturing a product in order to sell that product to customers in Korea, I'll you know, use that as an example, they would have had to establish an operation in Korea in order to be able to reach that customer and actually make sales locally. So this concept of taxation was created when businesses had to 
have a physical presence in order to market to the global economy, to the global markets, to other jurisdictions. Now, the problem is the digital economy, what has this done to the world? It's, it's allowed companies to have a much broader reach without having a physical presence. You can buy a product directly from Korea, manufactured in Korea with a Korean company. Even if you're in the US and you're in Saudi Arabia, you can be in France, you could be anywhere. And you can now buy products and acquire services from companies all over the world. So these companies that are locally based in one jurisdiction have a much far-reaching capability than they would have had before the digital revolution, right? And now the problem is governments are thinking, wow, how do we tax this fairly? Is this fair, right? I mean, you're, you're able to sell products and goods into my market now. Am I getting my fair share of taxable profit? Exactly, exactly. And interrupting very briefly here for our first CPE code word, and that code word is GLOBE, as in the entire globe, but also the name of the global minimum tax in the Pillar 2 proposal. Returning to our conversation, the OECD has boiled a, quote, taxation of the digital economy plan down to two proposals. We know them as Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. Let's start with Pillar 1. If passed, how would that work? So yes, the Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 initiatives were initiated to help address this idea of the digital tax revolution. And they are designed to raise approximately $100 billion in corporate tax dollars on a global basis, right? That's a pretty significant amount. Pillar 1 specifically is a redistribution of profits. Now, it's the intention really here is hey, is everybody getting their fair share of the pie? I think that there's some questions about, okay, a U.S. multinational company, are they paying their fair share of taxes in other jurisdictions where value might be created? And Pillar 1 actually has two specific amounts, and they're referred to as Amount A, which is the actual split of all these residual digital profits, right? And then amount B, which is considered to be this fixed return for certain routine activities like a marketing distribution or those activities that physically occur in a particular jurisdiction. Now, there's still a lot of questions on the table in terms of how to apply amount A and amount B. The blueprint on Pillar Run actually came out in last October, in October of 2020, and, and lots of public commentary has been received. I think When I was listening to the Inclusive Framework discussion, they explained over 200 public comments were actually received. So they now have to go through that and figure out exactly how this is going to work in practice. And Pillar 1 has particular significance for transfer pricing, as you mentioned in your article. Can you tell us about that? Well, it definitely is. It's an allocation of the residual profits, right? And so it challenges this concept of the arm's length principle, which is every entity that is involved in an intercompany transaction is earning a return in, in line with their functions and assets and risks, right? In line with their their activities. Now, the arm's length principle is the foundation of transfer pricing. So when we start talking about this pillar one amount A and the allocation of residual profits, the problem is it's very formulaic, right? And so at least based on the blueprint as it exists today, because it's so formulaic, what this does is it creates... Um, a divergence perhaps from the arm's length principle and creates an environment of complexity where now companies that are appropriately applying the arm's length principle and ensuring that the prices charged between related parties are based on third-party market conditions can now potentially be subject to double taxation under this amount A calculation. So tell me, Mimi, how has that been received? Well, I don't know if it's, It it depends on who you ask, right? So (laughs) I I think even transfer pricing economists and and multinationals, clearly, I think they all believe in the arm's length principle. So the arm's length principle has a lot of support. And I think that the fact that the Pillar 1 
blueprint currently challenges the arm's length principles outcome is a problem. It's not necessarily being as well received as anticipated. Now, the U.S. specifically, they had basically commented to say they want to see Pillar 1 applied on more of a safe harbor basis, right? A more elective as opposed to a mandated sort of allocation of residual profits. Like I said, it depends on which jurisdiction you're talking about. Other countries, right? As you can imagine, the countries who perhaps feel as if they are not getting their fair share of taxable income today because of the way that the rules are set up and situated, they're very much for Pillar 1's uh, amount A allocation, right? And they they perhaps are not as, as concerned about the deviation and, and the interplay with the application of the arms length principle. Now, everyone acknowledges, though, that in order for Pillar 1 to work, there needs to be a new definition of what constitutes a nexus, right? What constitutes taxable income or tax liabilities in certain jurisdictions when you don't have to have a physical presence anymore? I, I think that's going to be the real key factor here, right? Because what gives a country a right to tax that particular revenue? I will give you an example of this because I was thinking about it, right? And I was thinking about, you know, the reallocation of profits and in particular, I remember a business trip I made where I landed at uh, Copenhagen, right? I landed in Denmark at the airport. I called an Uber, right? So I'm a U.S. citizen. I called Uber, which is a U.S. company, right? I landed in Denmark, but that Uber then took me to Sweden. So how does that get taxed from Uber's perspective, right? And, you know, I think it just creates some complexity. As you can see, there are a lot of different components to that particular fact pattern that I gave you that clearly needs to be worked out. And interrupting very briefly for our second CPE code word, and that code word is guilty, though not spelled in the same way as the U.S. tax law. You can just spell it the normal way. See, we're pulling curveballs on you. Returning to our conversation. Now, what about amount B? How will that work? Amount B as it relates to Pillar 1. Now, this is specifically related to establishing a fixed return for certain routine activities like marketing and distribution activities. And in order for Amount B to apply, once again, all of these guidelines that the OECD are going to come out with, they have to be adopted into law first and foremost. Now, the calculation of Amount B as the blueprint lays out is that the return for marketing and distribution activities would be based on the transactional net margin method, unless a different method proves more appropriate, right? So already there's a formulaic approach to establishing, hey, you know, the OECD or different jurisdictions, right? There's already a problem I can see, which is, does each country have a different you know, understanding of what an appropriate fixed return should be, right? Is it the same in all countries? Is it different in all countries? Like, who's going to be able to determine that? Who's going to make the rules on that? And then I think it's also unclear as to how this fixed return impacts the calculation of a amount A, right? So once again, let's go back to my Uber example for a second. In that example, the U.S. multinational company could or should retain a certain percentage of the profit for marketing and distribution activities, which probably undertakes some of those activities in Denmark as well as Sweden. And so each of those different countries earns a routine return for those functions, right? And then, you know, the question is, okay, then does about A apply, which the residual then gets allocated and distributed across those three jurisdictions based on some other formulaic approach. It's still very unclear. And what about Pillar 2? Tell us how that works. So Pillar 2, I mean, it's it's basically the global minimum tax. It, 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 so it's referred to as the Global Anti-Base Erosion Proposal and acronyms. Everyone loves acronyms. So this is GLOBE, okay? Now, when I first looked at it, I thought it should be like, Glabe? Where's the anti-base erosion? Where's the anti-base piece of it? But Globe is probably a little more catchy. So Pillar 2 proposes a minimum level of tax 
where all these jurisdictions around the world would have to agree to tax at least 12.5% of the profits generated by companies headquartered inside their borders. And what this does is it levels the playing field. I think in politics, we need a sort of scapegoat of absurdity in the procedure process whereby it doesn't matter what you name a law, only that the abbreviation sounds nice. <laughs> I think that that's a palpable amount of absurdity that could really help the whole process just move forward a little bit better. Well, in this case, we have globe. So. <laughs> we'll have to. Well, who cares? Who cares what the actual abbreviation means in terms of the words? We'll just accept that globe is what it should be. What are the issues that Pillar 2 represents? Well, first and foremost, you have to get all these different countries to agree to a minimum tax of 12 and a half percent, right? And then you have different jurisdictions with, you know, unilateral tax measures in place. For example, the U.S. And by the way, going back to the whole acronym issue, we got U.S. is guilty, right? <laughs> now that's perfect. <laughs> the guilty tax, the global intangible low taxed income. Now that that is currently a 10 and a half percent minimum tax on IP held abroad by U.S. multinational companies, right? And so the question will become, okay, well, how does Pillar 2 interact with U.S.'s existing tax regime? Would guilty need to be changed or modified? Is it a duplication? Um, is it a replacement? You know, what's going to happen? So I think it creates some concerns, especially if I'm a U.S. multinational enterprise. And I think one of the challenges right now that we see, especially from a U.S. perspective, is that Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, addressing this concept of the digital economy, they are targeting certain very large U.S. headquartered multinationals, right? Or that's the perception. And, and let's be fair, the reality is probably in line with the perception. And so I think right now, the Pillar 2 initiatives, once again, I mean, U.S. would have to perhaps reconsider tax reform. And we've already been through tax reform once and we and you would anticipate that they'd have to they'd have to implement new tax reform legislation in response to Pillar 2. But it's even more complicated than that. Right. The tax rules are so complex that. When we think about MNEs who are paying taxes on certain cross-border transactions because of for certain CFC rules versus withholding tax rules and the way that they treat foreign tax credits, all of a sudden you're creating this really complex web, which then could potentially continue to incentivize base erosion. Creating this level of complexity, I don't know if it necessarily prevents multinationals from looking for the loopholes, if you will, right? I mean, I, I think it just means that they have to do it a little bit smarter. So, mm, In which case, it just turns into a burden of greater bureaucracy. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Your article also talks about new Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in her role in all of this. What do you think her take on all of this will be? Well, so Janet Yellen actually has much more of a team playing attitude. She's been quoted as saying she would work with the OECD immediately and vigorously versus the former administration where former Treasury Secretary Stephen Munchen withdrew from the OECD talks last summer. He actually didn't want to work with the OECD because he was pretty adamant that this would 
impact America's digital companies, right? So it, it went so far as to be that the U.S. actually threatened retaliatory tariffs for European countries. And there was an investigation into whether or not certain countries were involved in unfair trade practices related to these digital tax initiatives, right? So once again, I think there is a little bit of a, a concern that U.S. multinationals are really targeted when it comes to this digital economy taxation project. And the U.S. wants to make sure that the application of this new global minimum tax is not just targeted towards these U.S. multinationals, but that if, if it's going to work, it's got to apply to all types of different digital companies because almost every company out there is really focusing on how to digitalize its processes, its business model. It's, this tax is going to have to apply to some of those European luxury companies, right? Not just Google and Facebook and Apple, but it's got to apply to some of the other European headquartered multinationals um, in order for everyone to cooperate and make it work. Interrupting one last time for our third and final CPE code word. And that word is yelling, as in if these taxes don't have you yelling by now, <laughs> not as in our new U.S. Treasury Secretary. No, not Janet Yellen. Don't spell it that way either when you send it in. <laughs> it's Yellen, Y-E-L-L-I-N apostrophe, or we won't accept it and we won't give you your CPE credit. I'm kidding, but do spell it that way. <laughs> Returning to our conversation. Speaking of EU countries, a number have launched individual digital services taxes. In your article, you mentioned that poses problems as well. Can you elaborate? Absolutely. So... The whole idea here, right, of the inclusive framework and the OECD's work on Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 is to get to global collaboration, to understand how we're going to get to a multilateral solution that countries are all going to get behind and support. Now, what's been happening is, I would say that the initial information being presented by the OECD, it's, it's created a lot of awareness. So all of these different foreign jurisdictions understand that there's an opportunity here, right? And they feel as if the, the getting to a global solution, perhaps they're not as confident that we're going to get there, right? Or that the OECD is going to get there. And so they've been launching their own unilateral digital services taxes, right? So countries like Austria, France, Hungary, UK, Italy, Poland, Spain. I mean, those are just a, a few countries that have already launched taxes related to digital companies or related to, you know, taxing digital companies. And there's only more on the horizon as well. When each of these different jurisdictions takes an individual approach to how they want to apply these digital taxes, it creates challenges. It just exacerbates the situation. And to be honest, I think it creates an environment where it shows that all of these different jurisdictions are perhaps not invested in actually coming to a global solution. We know that at the end of the day, a simpler tax system is absolutely required. That's, that's uh, the conclusion that we are drawing today, both from your article and from this podcast. Mimi, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Matthew. You know, her really good story about this digital services tax really quickly too, right? Because I, and I think it was, I don't know if it was on LinkedIn or Facebook, to be honest, but on social media, I saw someone post a receipt and they, they posted it to show and demonstrate the impact of these unilateral tax measures, as well as, by the way, the impact of, of Brexit. So this was a UK citizen and they made an online purchase of, it must've been some sort of luxury good. I don't know exactly, but they indicated that their purchase was about 300 euros. And then the tax on that was equivalent to 120 pounds. Significant. And that it was exacerbated clearly because of Brexit, but it's also as a result of some of these digital service tax initiatives. So are multinationals getting concerned about digital services taxes? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think this changes 
everything, right? And 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 ultimately, they're they're going to be paying very close attention to this in terms of let's just talk about the logistics alone. That's going to be complicated, and and you're already talking about a very complex tax system. And don't forget the digital services tax and all the implications. This could also have implications with respect to aligning it with the transfer pricing policies. And and who's actually is this is this actually a consumer tax? Is it a corporate tax? Does it go above the line, below the line? How does this impact the on underlying prices? But I have to tell you, at the end of the day, the people who are going to be paying this tax not necessarily the multinationals, but really the consumer, right? I mean, that I think that's going to be a huge challenge. You know, I was thinking about this, I, I and this 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 brings up a good point because you know when we think about this, the application of pillar one and pillar two on a global basis, this concept of creating a global consensus framework for the tax system. It's it's the prisoner's dilemma, right? Like. It's the prisoner's dilemma because if just one, if just one jurisdiction decides to deviate from the plan, right, right. they could make out like a bandit. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I was just, you know, I was just thinking about it and I was like, wow, it's the prisoner's dilemma. And, I, and that's, that's the challenge we're, we're facing right now. So hopefully we can all agree to not say anything. Of course. <laughs> and so and a salute to Mr. Nash, the the founder of of game, time for some game theory as, as they say on <laughs> That's social right. Media. That's right. <laughs> And just a final point before we close today's show, uh, Mimi and I were talking about how we tend to refer in international tax to home jurisdictions in the digital service tax debates as basically meaning the United States. For the purposes of this conversation, that context kept things short and to the point. But before we go into a summary of today's episode, I want to play a little bit of our episode 82 with Dr. Lorraine Eden, who, when I asked her about this very point and how legitimate it is to say that home jurisdictions basically mean the U.S., she gave this response. And I think this brings a little extra context to today's conversation. You're quite right that the very largest of the born digitals, uh, one of the terms I think is kind of an interesting term that I believe I might have been the first one to come up with some years ago is born digital and going digitals. The born digitals are firms that have really been born since the internet um, revolution and and everything they do is really online on the internet and that includes you know, for example, Etsy and would in, include um, Amazon, for example. Firms basically created many ways after 1995, mm -hmm. uh, whereas the going digitals are the ones that were their traditional brick and mortar firms that have moved over. So, for example, Microsoft, I would think of as a, a going digital. The firm started out by making laptops. Dell is a going digital firm. And so the true born digitals really do sell into a jurisdiction by putting up like Facebook has a website that's say in Singapore and uh, you and I, if I were in Singapore, might be on Facebook and my information is collected by Facebook and then bundled up and sold to advertisers who would really like to sell on the Facebook page. Or, you know, we have some kind of other hub. Many of these are platform firms, but not all of them are platform firms. And I think a HomeAway, for example, Uber, as entities that are engaged in, in this. And many of those are in the United States, not all of them. And over time, I suspect there are going to be more and more of them. What you need, and I think part of the reason why they started here, is the Internet connections here were earlier. The uh, U.S. rules were very open to their creation, and we didn't tax them. Right. So basically, there was a moratorium on Internet, on e-commerce. There was no taxation of e-commerce. It really isn't until the very last few years with the Wayfair decision, for example, that e-commerce transactions in the United States have even been taxed at the local state level. We had a very good how shall I, what we would call as an international business uh, of country specific advantages here that led to the rise of Silicon Valley mm -hmm. and to the rise of these very large multinationals in the United States. But there are other Silicons elsewhere. 
Mm-hmm. And there will be others that arise and take those places too over time. Yes. And just to summarize today's episode, the current tax system was created back in the 1920s when all was based on businesses' brick-and-mortar address. So now when profits are earned through online transactions where there is no physical presence, there becomes this question of who gets the profits. And the OECD, through the digital service tax debates, is trying to decide how profits should be divided, quote-unquote, fairly. Together, Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, the OECD's digital service tax proposals, are designed to raise about $100 billion in corporate tax dollars globally. Pillar 1 will redistribute about $100 billion U.S. and not raise much more additional revenue. Pillar 1 has two amounts. There's amount A, which is a profit split of residual digital profits to certain market jurisdictions. Then there's amount B, which is a fixed return for marketing and distribution activities that physically occur in a given market jurisdiction. What these amounts are and to whom they apply still needs clarification. The blueprint on Pillar 1 came out in October of 2020, and the OECD received public comments until January to figure out what's needed to make it work. Pillar 1's amount A is based on a formula to allocate residual profits not on the arm's length principle, which is the foundation of transfer pricing, hence a lot of argument about the subject. So for transfer pricing purposes, it basically changes everything. That is not hyperbole. It also creates a yellow brick road to double taxation. If transfer pricing rules allocate residual profits to market jurisdictions, profits can be taxed through those allocations and then again via amount A. So how has it all been received? Well, the trouble is the arm's length principle has a lot of supporters. But the main concern is the complications that stem from Pillar 1. The U.S. seems to want to see it launched on a safe harbor basis where businesses can elect to be subject to it. Other countries are dubious about that. This also requires new nexus rules as it hits MEs with tax liabilities where they don't have physical presences. Jurisdictions will have to agree on which countries have the rights to amount A. Profitability thresholds still need to be determined. Now, how about Amount B? How does that all work? To implement Amount B, countries would have to adopt it into law. Amount B is a fixed return for marketing and distribution activities that physically occur in a given market jurisdiction. Determined by the TNMM, or the Transactional Net Margin Method, Amount B ends up determined by the TNMM, otherwise known as the Transactional Net Margin Method, unless another method proves more appropriate. The OECD has to determine the preferred PLI. How this works with amount A is all still unclear. Now on to pillar two. Pillar two is a global minimum tax. And that minimum tax would be about 12.5% on the profits generated by companies headquartered inside the borders of individual jurisdictions that agree to that tax. The U.S.'s guilty regime is a 10.5% minimum tax on U.S.-based multinational companies' foreign profits. It's not really clear how that would all work in conjunction. U.S. companies would still be subject to guilty, but it would potentially force the U.S. to change the rate or eliminate the 50% deduction. This also targets MEs who pay taxes on cross-border transactions below a certain threshold, but taxes paid in one jurisdiction can be applied to the effective tax rate of another, creating complexity, which can incentivize base erosion. That global minimal tax, GLOBE, as it's called, based on an acronym that almost doesn't make any sense, (laughs) at least for ending up calling it GLOBE, will require its own anti-abuse rules. The inclusive framework is still considering exclusions on Pillar 2's calculation of the effective tax rate and top-up taxes on the GLOBE rules. In the U.S., and let's not mince words, the last administration was not cooperative. Former Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin withdrew from the OECD talks last summer. He said he wouldn't even work on an interim basis to change what might affect America's digital companies. The U.S. threatened retaliatory tariffs for European countries and even an investigation into whether the U.K., Spain, 
Italy and other countries were involved in unfair trade practices due to digital tax initiatives. Janet Yellen, the new Treasury Secretary, has more of a team playing attitude. She said she would work with the OECD, quote, immediately and vigorously, but she's still unlikely to agree to something that's only detrimental to American businesses. It's likely that European luxury companies would have to be affected as well, but obviously EU countries aren't happy with that. And as you've probably heard from more recent headlines on the subject, the U.S. is now formally backing a global minimum tax. Now, Turning back to Europe, it looks like we're going for a multilateral solution, but most countries are looking out for their own interests. Most DSTs that have been passed so far are constructed so that member states get a cut of the revenue derived from digital transactions in their jurisdictions. Austria, France, Hungary, Italy, Poland, Spain, Turkey, and the UK have all launched taxes on certain gross revenue streams, not profits, generated by large digital companies. It's on the horizon for others. The U.S. saw these as discriminatory, but not the only problem. Each of these taxes is individually structured. Just as an example, Austria's DST is a 5% charge applied to online advertising. Belgium's DST is a 3% aimed at only data users, so it gets complex. They're all seen as temporary measures, but no one knows when they will be repealed or if they will. And when you add country-specific digital taxes to an already complicated system, the conclusion everyone is coming to is that we need a simpler tax system. And if you get at least one takeaway out of this episode in that rather long-winded summary, it can be... (laughs) We need a simpler tax system. Period. End of story. Note to multinational companies everywhere. If you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big... You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Welcome back, everyone. We now come to my favorite part of the show. We call it What We Want to Know, a rapid-fire round of questions, a little less transfer pricing-oriented, so we get to know our guest a little bit better That said, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you probably feel like you know Mimi song like you know your favorite book. And that question will come up. So let's get to it. Mimi, always question one. Are you ready? I am ready. The first thing I'm going to do once the world is COVID safe is. Travel to the beach. I feel like that's the one thing I we we really haven't done. And by the way, you know, we're coming out of the winter, so. I, I would love to fly somewhere, go to a beach, right? Go on a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that. I, I am definitely looking forward to Siesta Key again. That that's I know that's like they you go there and everybody yeah. walks up and down the beach and says it's the top ten beaches in the in the world. And you're like, you know what? I don't know have that much experience, but I believe it. Uh, What do you think pandemic has taught you about being a parent with a career carrying so much responsibility? More and more patience, right? I mean, you know, I've always, I've always admired teachers even before the pandemic, right? But then, you know, knowing, having your kids at home and sort of having to balance between your career and being a teacher and, uh, you know, uh, taking care of your normal household responsibilities. It's that uh, additional element of being a teacher that I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, I can't do this. <laughs> How do you not know what two plus two is? <laughs> so, <laughs> but it has, it has definitely um, taught me more patience. 
uh, as you know, in terms of this this current environment. Of course. And very important question of all the departments across border. Which one has the smartest and best looking team? Oh, my gosh, that is. a loaded question. Then we'll have to skip. No, I, that, that's my that's my trick. Well, oh, do you, if you want to answer, that this is on well, you. Well, <laughs> yes, it, it. Oh, yeah, it is. It is totally on me. I would. I will split it up. How about that? <laughs> I will. I will give the smartest award to the professional services team. Right, <laughs> all of our technical experts who are executing on the transfer pricing deliverables as well as the R&D tax credit deliverables. Uh, and then I will reserve my judgment on the best. I think that's I think that's very smart. I, I was totally putting that in as a as a gotcha question. I would just skip for <laughs>, laughs. But, you know, you host all of our TPU seminars and I ask the questions. Do you have a favorite session or is there one elementary subject of transfer pricing you always have fun talking about? I actually like the basics, to be honest, right? I, I, the very first I, I one, do. like I like, like okay. I like the basics. I I feel like the when someone doesn't know transfer pricing and they just need to understand, you know, the basics of transfer pricing. I'm like, okay, roll my sleeves up and say, let's talk about transfer pricing, right? Because it's it's such a novel concept, and and just to be able to see people grasp it so quickly because it's not overly complicated. It can be, don't get me wrong. There are lots of aspects of transfer pricing that get extremely complicated and esoteric, but the basic framework is easy to understand. And so because I see the light go off in people's eyes when we talk about it, it it sort of gives me that immediate satisfaction of, okay, now you're hooked. Now let's get into the nitty gritty, right? (laughs) Of course, of course. When you see that that first hit of transfer pricing, there's nothing like it. Yep. Any reading recommendations for tax professionals? Bonus points if they're fiction. Oh, yes. Actually, so I try, I actually read a decent amount and and I, you know, I I read Mm -hmm. at night when I'm putting my children to sleep. And so I try to be as diverse in my reading as I can because I like to get a lot of different perspectives. But there's one one book I read recently, which, by the way, is fiction. Everything I Never Told You by Celeste King. Excellent book. And then, but to give you a sense of the di- the diversity of of what I read, then I was reading sort of this, you know, more of a bi- biographical nonfiction book by Trevor Noah. Do you know who that is? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's somebody, you know, regardless of if you're a fan of The Daily Show, I would I would read a book about uh, the life of Trevor yes. Noah because it's just alone very interesting. Yes. And 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 his book was yep. it's called Born a Crime. And it was so yep. fascinating, right? Because it, it, it talked about his life. And I, these are things I didn't know about, right? Essentially that he was born into a world where essentially his existence was not legal and didn't count. He was he was born in South Africa mm-hmm. to a white mother and uh, and a father of color, yes. and that was not uh, legal, it wasn't in, legal in apartheid. Yeah, to, to put so many words on it, it's a very nuanced situation. It comes with a lot of comedy, from what I understand. I haven't read the book. Uh, I've seen a lot of a stand up to to that effect, and it, it's it's uh, the the story alone is is very riveting. Yes, it it is. It's it's very. It, it was very good, and so um, I definitely recommend that. And then, of course, you know, like I. The, the the standards, right? Like where the crawdads sing. I'm sure people have heard of those things. That, that was an excellent mm-hmm. book. And as well as this other book, which is more of historical fiction called The Alice Network. That was very really good. good. So t- tell, tell me about The Alice Network for, for a second, because I, I love historical revisionism. It was about these women who during I'm trying to remember which war it was. And I, I'll have to I'll have to look it up because of the war and the situation. These particular women had, were the ones that operated as spies, and and they were a spy network to be able to, um, you know, to be able to help defeat the the, the bad guys in this situation. And I want to say that this must have been in like Nazi Germany or something. Um, 
Oh, I, I sorry. Like so many of my books blur together, but <laughs> it was like I do. I read. I read twelve books at once, so I I totally understand. Yes. So, <laughs> anyways, the Alice Network. It is. It is a spy novel, if you will. Right. So, female spies. Oh, it's. It's so it's it's based on the real life Alice Network in France during World War One. That's that's the good stuff for, for spy novels. Is. World War One, because because then no gadgets, no no nothing. You had brass knuckles and and your your poker face. That was it. Oh, that's right. And then she had to use her. Well, well, like the gadgets, the gadgets are are there. They're just not you know terribly uh, not not quite James Bond sci fi level. And I say that as an old school uh, pre adolescent Ian Fleming fan, um, recovering I should say recovering Ian Fleming fan. Oh, if I can actually recommend a book, uh, debt the first five thousand years for anybody in transfer pricing, and just to briefly summarize why the uh, introduction to our financial transactions episode uh where i made the comparison between financial transactions and your cousin hitting you up for a couple hundred bucks at thanksgiving to help fix his car was inspired by david graber's uh debt the first five thousand years uh interesting he's an anthropologist so yes all of you economists out there take him with ten thousand grains of salt but the way he looks at how money was born from debt and not the other way around currency and 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 fluency of cash was born from debt and not the other way around in in very concrete historical terms is is really riveting and i can't go with every every uh claim he makes about uh what that means philosophically going into the future but uh his his history is is from everything I can tell uh, riveting and revolutionary and, and airtight as far as I've read the, the the criticism. So highly recommend. I will put that on my I will put that on my reading list. Yes, enjoy. Thank you again so much, Mimi, for being on the show this week. The article is The Corporate Tax Revolution is Coming. Are we ready? It's available on Bloomberg now. Thank you to everyone at home for tuning in. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And while you're there, check out our short form sister podcast. That's the Fiona Show Hot Off the Press with all of your transfer pricing reg changes and headlines from around the world in under 10 minutes. I'm Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Stay safe out there, everyone. Wear a mask, and we'll catch you next week.